Welcome to Choosing Leadership, a podcast for high performers with big dreams and for leaders who know that they are more powerful than the level that they are currently playing. I am Sumit Gupta, your host and the founder CEO of the Deploy Yourself School of Leadership. I am here to help the best leaders get better and to help organizations massively improve their output and impact and at the same time eradicating workplace stress. Yes. completely eradicating not just reducing completely eradicating i believe in creating a future and a work culture where people wait for mondays not fridays and get to do their most meaningful work the aim of this podcast is not to provide you more content but instead shift the context under which you operate this podcast is titled choosing leadership because that is what leadership is a choice In each episode I will celebrate leaders who have made such choices which are not always easy and comfortable but which has helped them get to where they are today. And let us celebrate the leader in us for choosing to move over our fears, for choosing to be motivated by something bigger than ourselves and for choosing to deal with every challenge that comes on the way. Let us celebrate you right now for stepping into the unknown and taking courageous action as those were the moments when you chose leadership at the end i will share how you can be our next guest on this podcast and with that let's get started enio is the group ceo of the ums group based in the netherlands he is a passionate promoter of global sustainability human rights and social meritocracy he is a strong leader who knows how to get the best out of people In our conversation we talk about nature versus nurture and how we are shaped as individuals and how growing up in an entrepreneurial family has shaped him. He shared a couple of serendipitous moments from his life which have turned out to be instrumental in his journey and we touched upon the important role of meditation in helping him stay balanced as a leader and how his leadership style has evolved over the years. Welcome Anio to the Choosing Leadership podcast. Hi Shamit, nice to be here. Wonderful to be invited by you. Wonderful to have you as well. And for our listeners, can you start by sharing a little bit of who you are and what do you do? Yeah, so my name is Anio Neumann Sinisi. That's the full name. It's probably even a bit longer than that, but my friends call me Anio, my first name, and if people don't remember that then I always say just think of the Italian composer contemporary composer Ennio Morricone and then people will somehow remember I'm 61 years old a the group's chief operating officer of UMS group I'm based in Europe in Amsterdam I'm in the field of management consulting for about 37 years of which about 30 in the energy domain oil and gas my career path was seen shell with some senior positions there Accenture Proudfoot AT Kearney and a couple of other major consulting companies in addition to being also an entrepreneur from a family ownership perspective wonderful thank you for sharing that can you share a little bit of your backstory and how did your background led you to where you are today that's a major question so mate so where you want to start i can start when when i was a child or when i left school and what happened on that journey so you pick and choose yeah so share any one or two key events or periods of time which shaped you as a person 
Yeah. Okay. There are, of course, in every man's life, there are a couple of events that basically nurtures your, your future. It's my opinion that we all start with a kind of a clean sheet and that we start with a, um, let's say an unused uh, toolbox. And that toolbox is for every person very specific uh, based. If you like, people are also spiritually oriented. And one could argue that when you're born, you're supposed to carry on a journey where your soul has been before other people just say, well, it's your DNA. And where others say it's completely nonsense, you're born and then you're, you grow up and the way you grow up is, deep, is basically shaping the person you're going to be in the future when you're an adult. I think it's a blend of everything. I strongly believe in nature and nurture, never mind the, the religious or spiritual dimensions you can add to this, but certainly nature and nurture is key. So I guess in my case, the nurturing was being born in an entrepreneurial family. My father had several businesses among which restaurants, nightclubs, farmland, and many other things. That basically made me also think as an entrepreneur. So being able to self-propel yourself in life and not being dependent on others is a key motto that I was nurtured with. And when I grew up as also in a little bit of a religious setting, a Roman Catholic background, which is, I can tell you, pretty shaping, especially back in the days when I was young. Although in my family, we had basically all the religions in the world visiting our house because that was also a fact of life. We were very open to everything. So that was also helping me in um, getting a broader understanding of people at a very young age. So I went to international school as a child. I grew up in the Netherlands. I grew also partially up in Italy. I'm Ital Italian and I'm Dutch, just to give you the, the cultural or the national um, dimensions here. And uh, basically growing up in the sixties and seventies was another, let's say two decades where a lot of important nurturing took place. By the way, I wish that our youngsters today would have a chance to live their youth the way I lived my youth in the seventies, because that was really wonderful. It was challenging. You could do almost anything. It was a big exploration. There was protest on the one hand, there was life on the other hand, there was people were exploring each other, challenging given paradigms, etc. So the sixties and the seventies were very interesting years. And then finally, of course, the music in the sixties and seventies was also a lot better than they make today, but that's an opinion of course. So I grew up in those years. They have shaped me to what I become today. I would think a social merit meritocrat, which is, I believe that people have to be self-supportive, but if we can't be. If they can't be self-supportive, then we as a state or as a society needs to need to help those people in moving along because we're a civil society. So we need to be able to reach out to each other and help. In my years growing up in the Netherlands, I was one of the few non-Dutch children, uh, which is an interesting aspect because I'm not like a Norwegian blonde or anything like that. So when I was small, I was a black haired kid. And, uh, and every time when something happened in school, all everyone was blaming me when I didn't do anything. It was a natural discrimination, although I, back in the day, I didn't call it like that. And, um, I learned to also distinguish those types of differences. And by the way, later on, it all faded away because then Amsterdam especially became more of a melting pot and slowly, but certainly all of those type of things vanished. Although today society is more polarized than ever before. So 
I grew up and I went, yeah, secondary school, the equivalent of secondary school in the Netherlands. I got my diploma and then I decided that I wanted to, to work. I got married very young, which basically also created additional responsibilities. When that happened, I also had to work. I worked with my, the business of my father, but I also had a business of my own. In the evening, I went to, to university. A couple of years later, got my degree. My first degree was hotel management, a bachelor in hotel management. And then I studied onwards to find out at one point that I wanted to become a consultant. And it was at the age of 26. But becoming a consultant is not so easy. So the first seven years of my consultancy life I spent as a, as an analyst, process analyst for a number of consultancy organizations. And I did that until I was 37. In the meantime, I had made a career in consulting. I became a senior consultant, but with all the experience that I had, I felt that I could do more. And I also learned to understand what leadership was all about, because there are so many books about leadership. If you have read them all. The risk is that by the end, you still don't know what leadership is by, by an academic definition. I developed my own and, and the one phrase that fits the best for me today is the, the Latin phrase primus inter pares. I'm not entirely sure if you know what that means, but you know, to be the first among equals. I found that my skill in all the businesses where I work and that were, and there are many in all those years that the ability to get yourself surrounded by experts in their specific field and me being a generalist, but with a clear focus on the strategic objectives was a way for me, at least to lead organizations, which I've done on, you know, overall successfully, some dramatic failures as well in my career, but those were very educational, let's say. Yeah. And that basically gave me the basis of where I am today. Can you share one or one or two of those difficult choices that you had to make uh, along the way? Maybe that created some success or maybe that created a setback. And then what did you learn from that? I don't know if it goes for every man, but when I was in my twenties and thirties and probably also my early forties, I felt I had to demonstrate my abilities and my capabilities. And I also wanted to be rewarded for what I thought was my achievement. I guess I was for a big part. Uh, ego-driven, which some, some bits of ego you need to have in order to move onward because otherwise it becomes a very passive life. But I think uh, the successes that I had also made me think that every, anything that I could do and anything that I would touch would turn gold, which at the end turned out not to be like that at all. And so I learned the hard way that when you push for success because of your own, your own personal satisfaction, whether that is about money, whether it is about getting more applause from people or whether it's about female attraction, <laughs> whatever works, that's not the right drive. And, not, and you're creating a false thrust because at the end you're playing in a field that's going to create backlash on you at one point in life. So I'm very grateful for the fact that I've been able to fail on a couple of occasions, which gave me the opportunity to learn and to see that there are better ways to, to move on. And when I had that realization, because it's not, there's a difference between knowing and having from a rational point of view and having almost like transcendent knowledge, which has been sunk into your stand. And I think the latter one at one point became a kind of a reality in 99% of the cases. 
where I can be a, almost like a third party observer of my own behavior, which allows me to, to interact or to act with a little bit more, yeah, without the drive to, to score a quick, goal. just look at the long-term future and not getting panicked or rushed by any other or other people rushing me because I just want to make a decision that has value for all the, um, all the stakeholders. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That's quite intriguing. And I think it's, as you said, maybe it's a common journey to move from ego-driven motivation to something bigger, something, right? But I also talk to a lot of young leaders. And then when I approach this topic of right standing for something larger than ourselves or letting yourself be a conduit for something, people often see that I will lose the motivation or I will lose the energy if I let go of the ego. For you, how has that played out? So if you have seen, like, there will be pushback if I try to push harder and harder, then how do you equate that in a culture where there is a lot of emphasis on hard work, on pushing things, on working harder and so on, right? Yeah, I think it's about uh, balance, first thing. So that's a key word, balance. The other key word is relativity. And the other keyword keyword is, let me put it in keywords. So the balance, relativity, and self-esteem, and love and respect. If those are your driving principles. So balance is one, is now one of my principles. And what does it mean? Does it mean that I don't work on a Sunday? No, it doesn't mean that. Because I have, I also have a sense of duty. And if I have to accomplish something that needs to be finished by Monday morning, and I couldn't finish it on Friday, I will definitely finish it on Sunday. I don't care. So there is this discipline thing that's there as well, but I will always do it in relationship to the objective. And the objective is, so for example, I don't like to be a manager. When I was in Shell, I tried to change that word from manager to facilitate it. So the higher you get up, what are you? Yeah, I am the, let's say I'm the floor manager. Now you're the floor facilitator, because if you are the guy who has to make it work for others, then you're not there to tell them what to do because there are most of the time are, are capable people, but you have to facilitate them to do it. Right. The, the, the challenge between ego-driven success and non-ego-driven success. I understand when people say, but you need the ego, you need the rush, you need the energy. Because otherwise, and that's, and that is exactly the essence of things. You need to ask yourself the question, if you need the anger, the rush, the ego to push for things, are you, are you trying to reach out for the right objective? I don't know. People could say, yeah, it's important because there's a whole rationale, right? So yeah, I need to make a career. Therefore I need to sell more vacuum cleaners. But in order to sell more vacuum cleaners, I need to be more aggressive with the people that work with me who go door to door put the foot in the door, et cetera. And they basically chase their sales representatives in the market. But at the end, you need to ask yourself, what am I doing? Is that what I'm contributing to? Is that really something that is contributing to the better of mankind, to improve the world, to, to have some other type of goal than just purely commercial? So when I started out asking myself those questions, I felt that maybe I should also change direction. The obvious, if you are an arms uh, salesman uh, selling guns and tanks and God knows what, then it's the obvious. But it, is it so obvious if you work in a, let's say in a petrol or an oil and gas environment, or is it so obvious if you work in a uh, car manufacturer, you have to ask yourself certain questions. When I get that realization, I decided that I only wanted to work in an environment where there was space for improvement for 
a company. I don't, I don't have anything against efficiency. I don't have anything against companies and people making money. I like to increase the efficiency of, of electricity companies or even the efficiency of an oil refinery, because at the end, even those margins make it still a better place. So, so there's always a way to justify why you are doing certain things. So the ego-driven side there is something that, yeah, if you really try, for example, to, to, to think what matters in life, you really have to get sick or when a shock and awe event happens in your life, like someone you love dearly dies, then you start to think about what's the purpose of life, those type of existential questions. I think if people would dedicate more time without having their relatives or the loved one dying around them, but dedicate more time to think about those type of existential questions. I think, first of all, we would live in a better world for sure. No matter what your religion is, I think if everyone would think about that, you know, what really the purpose of life and think about those existential questions, I think that would be by itself beneficial. I always recommend also to people who work with me to do a bit of a retreat for a couple of days in complete silence and just think about purpose of life, things that you are grateful for things that you have experienced, lessons learned over a period of time. Actually, I recommend people to do it every day, at least a couple of moments. But yeah, I also appreciate <laughs> the world we live in. So you cannot really ask that from everyone to do every day. But th those type of things are really helpful. Yeah. What are some of those practices? So you spoke about uh, spending time in silence. But what are some of those practices that helps you maintain that balance? But also like in the day-to-day -day when things get busy, when things get stressful, to not lose that. What are some of those practices that helps you keep that rhythm going? Yeah. Okay. It may sound boring, but I meditate. I do that two times. I try to do that two times a day in the morning, early and in the evening before I turn to sleep. And I don't say that I'm completely balanced because I also have my days that I'm really, it's beyond my capability to deal with it, but then I accept it. I accept it and, and just press on. Because then I think I do what I can and I work on it and try to get it done. But sometimes events happen, also unexpected events, which basically prevent you from, from staying calm because it's easy to stay calm in a very calm environment where there is no pressure, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. If you live in a pressure cooker, how do you do that? At the end, it's always about reflection and the ability to see how unimportant you really are at the end. If you think you are critical in a process or critical to the world, that's not really true because guess what if you get ill or if you fall dead then the world keeps on turning and the business that you work on keeps on working miraculously yeah. if i'm going on holiday which sometimes i do i used to always have my phone on and my emails on and only the last two three years i have re-educated myself in not doing that so i i'm available even if I'm on leave day week people can call me they can send me emails and stuff and then i will reply but the rest of the week yeah. guys it's up to you. And, uh, and that's very, that's freeing. But at the end, I think, um, meditation, contemplation, or if you are a religious praying, simple praying in the morning, praying in the evening, practice that all conservative Christians used to do. They used to pray when they wake, woke up and they used to pray when they went to bed. And one could argue, yeah, but that was for those people that still believed in God the way it was back in those years. But actually from a health perspective, it's also good to start your day contemplating on your day and closing your day off being grateful or, or even complaining about yeah. your day, but still have an outlet and then go to sleep. Mm -hmm. You have a good six hours, seven hours sleep or eight hours for some, and that's, that's fine. That's how it worked for me.
Not sure for others, but surely that worked for me. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And it's not boring. As you said, it's not boring. I think what a lot of people get wrong about silence or meditation is it's taking away you from productive work. And I think the real value of spending time alone is when you are in the heat of the moment, when you are under pressure, can you be present at that point of time? I think the real value of meditation is how it impacts the rest of your day. Not about those 15 minutes or 30 minutes that you're sitting in silence, but what it adds for you for that deeper wisdom or deeper knowing of what motivates you, what impact that you want to create, what matters to you. But then also it allows you to stay centered, stay balanced in the rest of the day. And believe it or not, it like I have gone through a similar journey. I wouldn't have believed it if somebody had told me 10 years ago. But sometimes slowing down and being present can allow you to do or get more things done or increase your productivity because now you are not in a hurry that you are making all the like mistakes or, or you are making all the wrong choices. You are there in the moment and you can see very clearly. And then instead of beating around the bush, you can sometimes directly ask a simple question which can go 10 level deeps rather than engaging in a conversation, a conflict, an argument without making headway. So thank you for adding that. I think I almost recommend silence as well as meditation to everybody I work with to build that presence because without presence, I think you don't have a choice. Like you are just driven by your patterns, your habits. Many of those are unconscious. And, and I think one of the key aspects of leadership is to be choiceful in what you're doing. Yeah, we are all wired differently, right? And, and so of the wiring and so in programming and we're all programmed and that's based on the nurturing aspects of, of life. And again, that's also culturally determined. If you are born in, in India or if you are born in Norway, it's a big difference, I can tell you. But still, in essence, we're all human beings driven by the same desires, basic desires and by the same called desires for sure. But it translates culturally, it translates differently, but also our DNA is also a factor because I can sit in the sun more <laughs> longer than other people can do and, and I don't burn. So <laughs> I guess that also influences my choices to some extent. And, and it's the same with, with food. In, in, in the Indian, you have these three body types, right? Yeah. It was a pita and the other one in the Ayurveda. Which I like because they basically also, based on your body type, you also make choices with regard to food and the, what you take mm -hmm. in. It's also again then determining the way you the way you are. But probably more important is the uh, the surrounding in which you in which you grow up, and that programming starts then to become an unconscious type of programming, like a window zooming in the back of your computer, and uh, you don't even know which applications are switched on, but you just yeah. work and you think that it's all. You, because this is also a fashionable thing these days when you hear people say, ah, no, you have to be yourself. All right. <laughs> define <laughs> your, define yourself. What do you mean? You have to be, you have to be original. You have to be the individual, etc. But no one today who would think superficially is really the individual that they think they perceive or when they say, I'm not going to meditate to, to become myself. No, yeah, it's not like that because you still have to undo all the programming and, uh, and the wiring before you get to the essence of who you really are. And sometimes I've, I wonder whether people really want to know who they, who they are, but that's probably something's uh, material for another interview, Russ. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe, but tell me this, you spoke about the world is a lot more polarized now. Yes. And the pace of the way things uh, get done has increased massively. 
how does this play out this balance this understanding is does that create a lot of confusion or misunderstanding when you meet people and then how do you deal with yeah okay so first of all i confirm that the world is a lot more polarized than it ever was before okay people are people have, don't have the, the the patience anymore and people are also for the last 30 years the number of impulses have been multiply, right? So when I was a kid, we used to play on the street and we play football on the street and every 10 minutes we had to stop because the car was passing, right? And we didn't have cell phones. We did all those things that we have today that are considered normal. The other day I was in a restaurant and there's a family with two little children and um, there was a toddler sitting with, a, with an iPad in front of it just to keep it calm and uh, yeah, so that the parents could talk and the kid was just completely obsessed by the iPad. I don't think that's a good development. And, and I think that's the basis, the number of impulses, the increase of the impulses that we are experiencing over the last 30 years are not synchronized with our ability to truly absorb the impulses and therefore respond in a correct way. Like we did in, in, in the old days, the old days from when the human when mankind started all the way up to, let's say 30, 40 years ago, right? Because uh, until 30, 40 years ago, we could handle and manage the impulses that we were experiencing and also preparing a response. And the response was then based on, on rational thinking or a feeling that had the chance to uh, go out and explore. And there was time. Today, there is no time. So what happens is that the, because of that, and also because, of course, the developments of society, uh, the gaps between the haves and the don't haves, have, yeah, those, the, that gap has been enlarged. It's bigger than it ever was before. It becomes increasingly different, increasingly more difficult to um, to manage people and to support people and to facilitate people who are drifting between in that bandwidth. Am I too abstract, or do you copy what I you understand? No, I I do understand, but I think what I am really want to get to is like, uh, what challenges does it present to you and how do you deal with that? If somebody is coming from a business school or, or coming from a background where they had a boss who was always on their heads, right? And even it's beautiful how you are using your words, supporting and facilitating. A lot of people I, I want to talk, I talk to and they use words like control, staying on top, fixing. So you're, you're already taking a very different mental angle to leadership managing people, but when you bump against somebody who is impatient, who wants to just be in action, how do you deal with that? Because then you have people reporting to you, you have yes. huge responsibility as well. How does that play out? Well, the way I select the people, when I joined the company where I was now, in, in about two years, I, I departed from some of them, or I allowed those to depart from us because I felt that they were not of the pedigree that I needed to have in the company to grow the company according to a certain, let's say, vision, if you want. I like people to be hardworking, hard playing, joking, but understand that we today we really are, we need to create, we need to have different values that are beyond ourselves. And uh, I like team play. And uh, so therefore, if people come from a company where there was a very strong, directive culture, managerial culture, upper out type of culture. I basically have to, if I see the talent in people and they come to work with me, I have to get them into detox first 
And, and detox meaning that people come to the office and say, okay, these are some things that I would like to get done. Can you have a look and, and whenever you're ready, come back to me and tell me what you found or something. I'm being abstract here, but that's in my line of work. That's what we do. Or if someone has an expertise in a certain field, I would love to know more about how you feel about this and this topic about ESG, about the energy transition. Can you share me? Can you write down? Can you make a, can you prepare a little essay or a little executive summary on uh, where you think we're going as a society on energy transition, for example. And based on that, we have a platform of departure and then we start to define what type of objectives the person should have and, in, and where we have a, a common journey because hmm. it needs to be a common journey, right? So a company is about shareholder interest, of course, we need to grow. I like organic growth, but I also like to grow. The challenge that, that I put onto the company is that we need to have organic growth based on truly created value for our customers. And that's not an easy one because the value, the perception of value, it's almost like a supply chain of, of value principles. So if I go to a major electricity company, a transmission company, I have some ideas on how to change the strategy towards becoming more data efficient and things like that. That may be a value, a value position for them. But on the other hand, if the CFO has to sign off for a proposal for a consultancy project, he may well say, ah, but we need to see bottom line results, what it means translated into bottom line results. So there are different value drivers. Whereas maybe if you talk to the human resource director, she says, yeah, but I want to increase the skills level of our people, right? So you have to take in those value drivers for the mm -hmm. different people. And that leads back to what we then do. And therefore creating a value proposition to help the customers need to be based on the people that I got in my team and the knowledge that we jointly have and the experience that we have, the models that we have, and to mold it all together in order to get the perfect team play to, to create that specific value for that, for that customer. So it's not an easy one to answer your question precisely. It's not an easy one, but I guess my first line was getting them into detox first. I think the, that first key. Thank you. Thank you. And I also love how you continue to use words team play, right? Instead of teamwork, I think, and you spoke about like a platform, a common platform of values of something other than just VR and then also how the detox also, but how do you create space for people to, to establish that? And I think this is, there is so much, it's, yes, it's abstract, but there is so much wisdom there for anybody who might be listening to that, that how you change somebody else or how you show somebody a different way is again not by pushing but actually by leading by example asking questions allowing that like answers to come up rather than forcing it down somebody's neck yeah it's interesting that you say that because in my in my teams um i like for example rugby players because i did a study and I found that rugby players, especially professional rugby players, they have it all. They have stamina, they have the respect, the love for their, for the game, the eagerness to, to never give up, to, to win, but also to have chemistry once the game is done and also to help each other when one is, when one triples, it's not that they give them the push, but they reach out and make sure that the other one is not falling over. And that's a wonderful, and there is only one sport so far that I've been able to identify that could really achieve that. And so I got a lot of top rugby players in my team and they're all wonderful guys. And then I got people that are slow learners and quick learners. I got people that can be, that become a junior consultant and stay junior consultant for five years. I don't care as long as you 
are the right element in the team, we can carry on. But I got another guy who started one year ago as a junior, who is now a senior because his learning curve was so steep, but he took it. And he is now a senior expert in his field in one year. So we don't exclude that there is no like a career plan that you first have to do an assignment of four years in one place and then you go four years another one. So first you start as a sergeant, but before you become an officer, you have to spit blood and sweat, tears and, and salt, all those things. It, no, mm. it doesn't work like that. Things have to work without, without too much pressure and has to. So I try to create the ideal biotope for each and every individual. Yes. And I think this is so beautiful because the way we normally do performance management, then the way we normally do promotions is to put people under buckets, buckets of underperformance or overperformance. And what you're sharing is that it's okay if somebody is slow or taking time or somebody is fast, doesn't mean that one is better than the other. It just means that people are different. And also, more importantly, I think everybody is on a different journey at a different point of time, given what how life is like happening for them and then as leaders can we be flexible to allow for that pace and to nurture it rather than force people or to judge people when it doesn't happen the way we expect it to yeah well the word judging i i also that's another one i've learned to not judge i qualify or evaluate performance because i cannot judge a person a person to me is like a diamond i can see two facets mm. or three facets but maybe he has 20 facets and then maybe there are 17 out there that i haven't seen so who do, who do, <laughs> i don't know this person i only know what i see from him and i see the performance so I, that's that's an important one i think because too often you hear ah you know that guy is this or that but i don't i know I, I don't know i mean i see a lot of bad behavior but I'm sure that he is, he's, he's maybe a good husband. I don't know, or he's a good son for his mother. I don't know those type of things. I don't, I don't really know, but business-wise speaking, because at the end, this is a business setting that we are trying to describe. I think we're all, we also have to deal with KPIs, right? So I have a dashboard with key performance indicators that basically that I have to be caring about. So this financial performance, there's my margin, this profitability and all those things, which is by the book, but. And I don't think that because one has a different way of approach to leadership or even to, to thinking about society, that those KPIs suddenly are no longer valid because this is the system in which we have to perform. But the way how to get there is, uh, is not necessarily the same as what I would generally find in other, in other companies. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think this doesn't take away anything from the metrics or measurements. At the same time, when you allow people to be who they are more open, they take up more responsibility and bring up issues to your attention, even when otherwise they wouldn't because of fear of reprimand or fear of performance review or something like that. I think the metrics tend to take care of itself if you can take care of like the software aspects of yeah. who people are and then doesn't stop you. As you said, you, if you have to work on Sunday, you work on Sunday, right? This whole approach doesn't stop you from taking a hard stance or taking a tough decision if you have to. So, and you said something, you said word twice, fear. I think fear is one of the biggest uh, threats of society. Let's take the, uh, the, current, the current situation in the world the geopolitical situation, Russia, Ukraine, or everything that you see is fear-based and power-based, power hunger. But power hunger is also a derivative of fear. I don't need power. So if I don't need power, I'm not afraid 
I'm losing it. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. And I, I, do I need money? Yes, I need money. But is money my, my, my end goal? No, money is a means to do the things that I love to do. Do I work for money? No, I work to achieve something else and money comes as, the, as a consequence to enable me to do the things that I want to do, right? So I try not to be fearful. I'm not always without fear because complete, being completely without fear is, I don't think it's natural. I think we should, because we live, therefore we have an inner drive to live. Inner drive to live makes you love or makes you fear, right? And, and if people are making decisions fear-based, I think those at the end are not going to pay off so well. And by the way, look around you. This, yeah, yeah. I think if I look traditionally, most of leadership, whether it's political or organizational leadership, it has been fear-based, rewards and punishment-based. And what you are highlighting, right? You it brought a smile to your face, right? You don't need power, so you're not scared of losing it. It's so beautiful when you can motivate people, take people along with love or with. Yeah. caring for something much more deeper that you don't need fear and that creates a total new level of creativity and innovation and yeah thank you thank you so much for yeah adding. but maybe to close the loop on the opening questions about what brought me in my journey mm -hmm. i think one of the conclusions that we can draw in order to also close this loop on how i got there is that for a long time in my life i thought power was the way to, was the way to go. I wanted to have the power. I wanted to be the senior manager. I wanted to be the executive partner. I wanted to be the managing director. And I wanted to have those titles on my cards as well. Today, I couldn't care less, but that's because I learned it. If you go for power, you have anxious nights because if you don't achieve it, if you don't achieve that position, you're in fear. And, and being, I can tell you, it's quite a relief or a release and the energy that you get from not. Yeah not being, not chasing power, but even in politics, I'm also active in politics, but I'm what I would call a reluctant politician because I don't need to be in politics for the sake of the politics. Mm -hmm. I just feel that I can contribute with the things that I know to create, to do my contribution to, to society, but not because of, of the position. Yes. Yeah. So thank you for adding that part as well. I, it's so relevant, I think, and it's very personal for me also because I remember I have done the same. I have rejected opportunities because there was a senior missing in the job position which was offered to me. It was a, it was not a director position. It was something like that. Hmm. And it sounds so silly, but at the same time, for somebody who has grown up in that environment and who has not seen any other way, you are, it's like you are almost in, a, in that trap without knowing that this is just one perspective. Absolutely. And one of the, and before, before we started, you were asking me to buy this podcast. And one of the reasons why I'm doing this is to bring to attention that there is a different way of leadership. Like fear-based progress, even if it happens, leaves a lot of negative residue. But at the same time, it doesn't have to be that way. And then you can lead by love. You can make progress by love. And most of the times it is it is faster. It is like the progress is better, more inclusive. And even if it is slower or if, if we look or we see that it is progressing slowly, there's a lot of deeper value or gold, which we are not seeing. At least there is no, there is very little damage happening. And that is something which I want to change for the younger generation. For me, it took me a long time until like, until for, like for me, it was losing my mother, as you were talking about. That was the moment where I suddenly felt right. What's the point of all this? But the younger generation doesn't have to wait for that. It's, it could be like working yeah. with somebody like, like you who can exemplify that. 
but also to to have this circulate in our ecosystem in our media in our like schools colleges yeah i agree but it's the paradox of of experience people grow up and why are we still in wars today why haven't we learned from 10,000 years of fighting and wars when we our ancestors were knocking each other's head off with stones and sticks and now we're in the essence nothing has changed so apparently we're not necessarily learning we're learning on the technical uh, technological side but we're not learning from a, a human transition perspective side although we are but very slowly and only a minority is picking it up and that's that that is concerning and then finally on education the biggest one of the biggest crises in modern modern history has been caused in 2008 or has occurred in 2008 and one would argue yeah but you know how is it possible because all those seniors in banks in, in all those companies they all have had these major mbas harvard oxford god knows what all the top universities in the world so how come that those people that are sitting behind the, the keyboard apparently are pushing the wrong buttons because they've never learned in university to be ungreedy. It's all based on, I did a DBA, right? So, but that was, okay, that was a bit of a different one. But I have to say the average MBA is all about the parameters in business and how to, to make capital gains and commercial successes, et cetera. But it's actually almost never about sustainability from a character point of view. And that's regretful. And I know there are now business schools that have changed that, that are giving us new leaders, but I'm a little bit skeptical about the ability of mankind to, to, to let off, to let go the ego-driven aspect of wanting to make money and greed, etc. because greed is one of those other drivers. But then again, we go back to fear. Yeah. I yeah. think <laughs> lift, yeah. take out, take out the fear and everything will be different at the end, mm -hmm. even education. Yes, absolutely. So I see this as an opportunity. I think times are changing. I think we are evolving for the better, as you said, in many business. But for me, like, I don't want to focus too much on the past or the future. I want to be present in this moment and say, what is my opportunity? What is mine to do here? If I am talking to a dean of a business school, I'm not going to hold my thoughts back. If I'm talking to a CEO, I'm not going to hold my thoughts back because I think that's those one second or one conversation is what makes a difference. Again, going back to mindfulness or meditation, we can make huge plans, progress, growth, strategy. But when it comes to this moment, can you be centered? Can you be balanced? And can you just do what is required in this moment? And if you take care of that, in a way, everything takes care of itself. Absolutely. Well, is there any final question you want to? No, no, Anya. Thank, thank you so much for your insights, for your wisdom. I totally loved our conversation and I'm sure everybody who listens to it will see this differently, but also take a lot of value from it. And I invite anybody who is listening to what, to listen to this multiple times. I think there yes. is more gold here than to listen, listen to it just once. Okay, wonderful. So I'm happy to contribute to your, your journey as well. Uh, please cut and paste as much as you want to get a, to get a proper acceptable transmission. And and if there's anyone next session you want to talk about certain things, feel free to uh, to reach out to me. Sure, sure. That's it for this episode of Choosing Leadership with Sumit Gupta. I choose leadership every time I record this podcast, and I invite you to do the same. I invite you to design a life of joy, meaning, pride and satisfaction, not just for yourself, but for everybody around you. 
If you got something out of this episode, would you share this episode on social media? And if you know somebody who would be a great guest, can you tag them on social media to let them know about the show? And if you are a leader who wants to acknowledge how far you have come and have big dreams for the future, please reach out to me to be a guest on this podcast. And I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. This is what I do most naturally, to lovingly and gently provoke you, to help you see your own light, to help you see what you are already capable of. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and it means a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to deployyourself.com and subscribe to my newsletter or follow me on LinkedIn. I want to thank everyone who contributed to making this show a reality and I want to thank you for listening. Always remember that you are enough, you are loved and you matter. This is Sumit. Until next time, keep choosing leadership.